everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where that's the topic of conversation. I am the author of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy. I am a nurse with about 20 years experience working in labor and delivery, and I'm the mother of quite a few adult kids. I'm also an advocate for gender equality and for improving maternal health. So that's me in a nutshell. This is the week after the historic 2020 U.S. presidential election, and let me tell you something, America showed up for it. There were more voters in this election than any other in America's history. People in both parties voted in record numbers. Election results have determined that Joe Biden is our president-elect, though our outgoing president has yet to concede. We're in a messy, kind of scary transitional period where we don't know yet what Trump's going to do and what Congress is going to do in response. One way or another, I'm really confident Biden is going to be inaugurated in January, and we'll just have to see how all this goes. Let's talk about Kamala Harris, the first woman vice president of the United States. Yes, I am delighted because I'm a woman of a certain age. I have waited a good long time for a woman to have her foot in that door to see what happens when a woman has direct influence on what happens in the Oval Office. Sure, there have been advisors, there have been cabinet positions, but this is a woman vice president. The fact that she is a woman of color is even more powerful. Her insight and perspective and thoughts and goals and ideas and plans, they'll be different than anyone else who's held that position because she's a woman and a woman of color. Let's see what happens next. Among the many reasons I feel so relieved by the election of Biden and Harris is because the, they take the coronavirus seriously, and they're already working to turn this thing around. They put together a task force right away to quickly put out a plan, uh, to put a plan in place that can drastically increase testing and PPE supplies and treatment for people affected by COVID-19 and the people who actually need it most. In addition, they're discussing the everyday common sense measures that must be in place in order for us to survive financially in these weird and deadly times. There's hope, you know, there's hope. For the first time in a while with this virus, there's hope that we might eventually eradicate the disease and be able to live our lives in whatever becomes the new normal. I, I think that we won't be going back to what normal was before before COVID, but we'll form a new normal and one that includes seeing our people again, celebrating holidays together, holding new babies and hugging our friends. It'll include going to the grocery store without feeling afraid. It'll even include birthday parties and weddings and school. What a plan without a plan and the determination to put it in action, the virus will spread and spread and spread. With a plan, there's hope. I'm into it. Bring on the hope, please. This is super important for pregnant women because studies are showing that COVID is tougher on them than we originally thought. 
But in order for women to be able to stay safe, there have to be accommodations and support measures in place. And currently, America doesn't do much to provide support for its mothers and parents. I want to read an an op-ed from the New York Times that appeared November 9, titled, Pregnant Workers in COVID-19, Making the Case for Federal Legal Protections. To the editor, regarding the article that appeared on November 3rd, Pregnancy Raises Risk of Problems from Virus. Eight months into the pandemic, health officials now have conclusive evidence published in a new study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that pregnant women are at increased risk of severe illness or even death if they contract COVID-19, and they should take precautions to avoid risk of exposure to the virus. But unlike workers with disabilities, pregnant workers in the United States still lack a clear federal right to reasonable workplace accommodations to remain safe at work, assuming no undue hardship to the employer. These accommodations include access to personal protective equipment, a temporary transfer, or the ability to work from home. This means that millions of pregnant workers, especially those in low-wage jobs, disproportionately women of color, who also face disproportionate risk of the virus, are routinely ignored, punished, and sometimes even fired when they request a temporary workplace accommodation protect their health and keep their paycheck. This is shameful and also perpetuates racial disparities in maternal health outcomes. We can and must do better. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, Act, which passed the House in September with bipartisan support, would put an end to this second-class treatment. Especially in light of the new study, the Senate must pass this crucial legislation without delay. Okay, that's the end of that op-ed. That, my friends, is how pregnancy, parenting, and politics are connected right there. Call your senator and tell them that the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act is important to you. Okay, let's take a real, real quick break, and then we'll get this week's guest on the phone. This week, we're going to talk about diversity and how race shows up in midwifery training. I received an email from this week's guest that I'm going to read to you. My name is Ashley Evans, and I am a student at Yale School of Nursing. Currently, YSN, that's the Yale School of Nursing, does not have a dean, director, or department of diversity. With high racial disparities and maternal morbidity, students of color feel as though healthcare workers are being taught not to listen right out of the jump. I was wondering if this would be a topic of conversation you'd be interested in for your podcast. Yeah, I'd be interested in talking about that, so let's get Ashley on the line. Hi, Ashley. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. How are you, Jeannie? I'm doing really well. So, Ashley, the first thing I need to know is where are you? I'm in Portland, Oregon. Where are you? I am on the other side of America in um, New Haven, Connecticut. I'm a Yale student. All right. You are on the other side of the country. And mm-hmm. um, you and I are talking on a very, very interesting day in American history. Uh, it's the day where we are hopefully going to be hearing the results of the election. How are you doing? We, oh goodness. Um, 
I am okay. Let me start off by saying that I think like most Americans, I am a nervous wreck. Um, it's just been, this week has been very emotionally tolling. Um, yeah. I think for everybody, regardless of, you know, what side of the, the line you fall on, it's just been a very difficult week. Yeah. Um, it's been intense. It really has. Intense. Yeah. Yeah. No matter mm-hmm. what else you happen to have going on in your life. And, you know, we are all still living our lives during a pandemic plus this election week. It's a lot. We're all going through a lot. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you the hard question. Who are you and what do you do? That is hard. Um, okay. So it's my it's name profound, is Ashley. Right? <laughs> it is. It, yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, no matter how much you kind of reflect on it um, I and how much I say it, I never know how to answer. Um, so my name is Ashley. I am a first year um what we call GEPIN student, so a graduate entry program to nursing, um, which is basically I'm in the first year of getting my master's degree at Yale University. Um, I am an up-and-coming certified nurse midwife, um, nursing student, and I came to Yale because I am also passionate. I know one of your previous guests, Kimberly um, Seals-Allers, was also passionate about it, but I came to kind of contribute to figuring out how we decrease our maternal morbidities rate. Um, and that's that's what I do. I kind of um, learn not just how to be a midwife, but also what kind of midwife I want to be. All right. That is a very, um, very interesting answer. So did you tell me a little bit about how you found your way to midwifery school? And, and when you say you're in your first year of the program, is this like a three year, you get your RN and your master's CNM at the, in the same program? That's exactly what it is. So ah, I, um, got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there's not a ton in the country, uh, but they, there are a few. Yale is, I think the only one where you don't have to take prerequisites. And that's kind of like it's um, claim to fame as far as RN, MSN programs. Um, Now, how I got into birth work is a bit serendipitous. So um, I was pre-med in college. I graduated college back in 2013, which is, I guess, quite a bit of time now. Um, (laughs) I was an engineer in college, and I knew I wanted to be in um, OBGYN, but I did ROTC, and the Navy kind of quickly squashed that. Um, And what ended up happening is about six years into my time as um, as a uh, officer, I met a doula and it kind of rolled into me becoming a birth assistant, which rolled into me pretty much applying and getting accepted into Yale. Um, it happened very quickly and about within a two year time span. And um, I just fell in love with it. And then once I learned about our maternal, you know, morbidity disparities and, and our outcomes, you know, we have the highest um, mortality rates when it comes to maternal, uh, maternal mortality in the developed world of all the countries we have the highest rate. 
Um, And I really started to ask myself like, okay, how, how can I take ownership? How can I take on my role of this or my small piece of pie in this, you know, national issue? And what can I potentially do to change this outcome? You know, I'm one person. Um, I understand if that's not a lot, but you know, what, if I tried, what could I possibly, you know, accomplish? Mm -hmm. All right. So you posted uh, something in Medium last month about the resignation of Yale School of Nursing's former director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I was wondering if you would tell us about that and what led to that blog post. That is, I've never really thought about um, the overall kind of significance of how what we learn in, you know, healthcare. So what we learn in medical school, what we learn in nursing school, um, does that play a role into the bigger picture of our, our maternal outcomes? Um, so about two weeks ago, our, or actually let me back up a little bit more than that, about two, maybe three months ago, over the summer, YSN decided to kind of and um, YSN dissolve. Is- Yale School of Nursing. Yes. Got yes. it. Mm-hmm. Um, YSN decided to dissolve the uh, Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion um, position. So we had a director of diversity, equity, um, and inclusion, and she fell under the dean of the entire school. So the entire, I guess, department of, we're going to call it, I'm going to say DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion from now on. Um, The entire department of DEI kind of fell under the dean. Well, when the director quit, there was no dean, there was no director, there was no department of diversity. Now, this is a school that teaches future healthcare workers. If we are struggling with diversity within the school, there's a good chance that that's probably going to carry on into our healthcare field. Um, and that's why I kind of wrote the, um, the medium piece, just kind of asking that question and exploring it. Well, we keep asking ourselves, how do we, why, right? Why are our death numbers so high when it comes to maternal outcomes? What if it's because of what we're teaching students? What if it's because of our cultures at school? You know, since we're asking why, and we're all kind of spitballing these ideas, here's an idea. Maybe, maybe it's how we approach women, and maybe we learn how to approach women in our medical or healthcare schools. And that's what kind of inspired the, the Medium post. Interesting. Well, you, you mentioned um, in your email that you sent to me before, you know, when we got connected, that with high racial disparities in maternal morbidity, students of color feel as though healthcare workers are being taught not to listen right out of the jump. So do you feel like you're being taught not to listen? So um, 
before our conversation, I listened to your podcast with Kimberly Seals, um, Allers. And one of the yes. things you said, uh, which was phenomenal, by the way, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Um, one of the things that you said that really resonated with me was um, you guys were talking about how nurses are learning to check off the boxes Oh yeah. where, you know, um, which is understandable when you, when you kind of work in a hospital that teaches you to, you know, stabilize patients and get them out of the bed because you need that bed to put someone else in and you learn kind of capitalism versus healthcare. It's the nurse who has to choose, right? It's the nurse who has to find the balance between the two and what ends up happening are those softer skills that listening, that serving, that observing, that um, caring, that's the first thing to go to the wayside because those things take time and time is a hot commodity on the floor. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think that we are explicitly taught not to listen. I think that we have a healthcare culture where capitalism and healthcare are pitted against each other and capitalism wins out. Mm. Um, that's not a nurse's fault at all. That's our, and that's not just healthcare, that's American culture as a whole. Yeah. But when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to students, we're passing that down. And the person who really takes the brunt of that are the patients. So are you in the training to be an RN program? Right now, you're in that first year where you go from, I am. yeah, that's intense. And it is. a big part it of what is. you have to learn in addition to, you know, procedures and treatments and patient care and standards of care is you do have to learn um, how to move, how to move the system along. And we're also taught, or at least I was in nursing school, which was, I thought it was fast paced back then, but um, it's nothing like it is now. We were, t we were encouraged that, you know, the communication, the softer skills, the um, really listening and putting our patients first, that that is our priority, but it doesn't take very long as a nurse before you realize that, well, that's the you know, that's the desired uh, priority, but it's not the actual priority. The actual priority is move it along, keep the system moving, keep documenting, keep taking care of the systems. And I'm curious about if, if that's how you're feeling in nursing school or if you've seen that yet. Oh, absolutely. First day. Um, I don't want to put anyone or um, my hospital on blast, but you, let's just say that when you're coming from, I was a home birth assistant, um, so an assistant to a CPM and I was a doula. So when you're coming from this space that is very, very slow and very, very patient-centered and um, intimate, and then um, my first clinical rotation was on the um, older adults, old geriatrics acute floor, I was, it, it, it took me a very long time to mentally process the treatment that I saw of patients mm -hmm. simply because it's so different from how 
doulas and um, home birth midwives and you know the natural birth community how we approach care um so yes i i have absolutely seen it and experienced it i don't think though and and this is and this kind of gets to the root of you know why i reached out to you i think that if we're ever going to really get our hands around the maternal morbidity um, disparity crisis, the racial disparity crisis and the, the mortality crisis. It has to start with doing the impossible. And I don't know how to do this either, but it starts with this, we have to slow down. We have to figure out how to change our entire healthcare culture, which is to, you know, check those boxes off, take care of the system, you know, increase revenue, decrease expenses, do it with less staff members, you know, faster, faster, faster. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have to kind of, how do you take control of everything and say that if we do not slow down, if we do not stop on the path that we are on, we will continue to have the outcomes that we receive, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So to just go back a step um, to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, is there much diversity among your classmates, the people that you're going through midway preschool with? I think my particular class is kind of a social experiment. I'm not really sure how our class ended up looking the way that it does. So we have, I think, 13 students of African descent from some sort of, um, from some part of the African diaspora. Not everybody is kind of um, from the United States. We have some international students, some immigrant students, first-generation students. We have maybe, I would say, 10 to 15 students from Asia. Um, And I think our class is 70% Caucasian or white, um, but 30% not white for, you know, a gap in class at Yale. The rumor is that we are probably one of the most diverse classes at Yale. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think that has brought a lot of challenges for the faculty at Yale, but at the same time, it's really, really important because we are literally talking about decisions that are made about people's healthcare, um, and then we go out and we provide that healthcare. And now that I'm kind of in this boardroom space where we're talking about policies and, you know, we have people who work in, on our state legislative legislation coming in to talk to us, it really makes you realize like, you know, wow, I'm in the boardroom now. What about those who are not in the boardroom? You know, mm-hmm. what about those people who don't have a say in the healthcare they receive? You know, we do not. So a big topic right now has been um, the trans community, especially the trans community of color. We don't have any trans community of color students, and yet we make a lot of decisions about how to improve care for the trans community of color. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we, and this is my personal opinion, that is how we got into the racial disparities problems in the first place is we continue to make decisions about care for people when they don't have any say in it. And now we're kind of perpetuating that. We have to slow down, take a step back and say, and take ownership of our healthcare system and say, what actions can we do to decrease our numbers? Um, one thing that I've seen at Yale um, that I really want to focus on, I'm probably going to write my thesis on or just spend more time um, combating is the theory behind the black disparity right now, the kind of popular theory is called weathering. And this it's this idea that when black women get pregnant, all of the stress and all of the um, kind of discrimination really manifests as these comorbidities during pregnancy and that leads to a higher rate of death. But the thing about that is, again, it, it, it takes the power out of us as healthcare workers and it places the blame on the patient. But if you don't have the power to, like if, if you give away that power, then you can't change it. You know, you, there's nothing you can do about it. And there's so many theories that kind of problematize the patients and, and disempower us as healthcare workers. Um, how do you bring that power back to the people who you know, are doing the work, are providing the care. It's it's our healthcare system. How do we give ourselves back the power? Do you have an answer? None whatsoever. <laughs> You're exploring the None question. Whatsoever. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I yeah. do think um I do think one thing, one answer for me, my goal is to one day make it to Congress and testify that we have to increase options and access to birth outside of hospitals for low, low risk births. Mm -hmm. Um, Some women want to give birth in the hospital. Some women don't. And if they are low risk, we have to increase access to that. And we also have to increase integration between high risk maternal fetal medicinists, OBs, CPMs, and CNMs. Um, if we are stratified, like if we are not united, then we really can't tackle, it's all of our problem. So we all have to come together to tackle it. Mm-hmm. Um, so those may be solutions. Those are what I believe, but I'm, I'm learning like everybody else. So I'm, I'm, I want to return to the topic of um, Yale's lack of a director to tackle this subject. It, it sounds like both in the student body and in the curriculum. And um, what's the conversation around that? What, how will that impact what you learn in your nursing midwifery program? And how is this going to impact what happens to you know, women who are not being, who are sort of in the bullseye for, for maternal mortality rates, you know, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous women. It's a big question. It's just opening a conversation. It's, <laughs> it is such a, 
I, I am so grateful that you asked that question. Um, I, I truly am. It has been, I'm going to be very transparent um, and honest. It has been grueling. It really, truly, honestly has. Um, the work of increasing diversity and um, approaching making healthcare safer for women of color, um, for you know more gender neutral, so that trans um, people feel safer in healthcare, has fallen on the students, and without a department of diversity. There's no one to really share that workload with. Now, I do think it's important to say that we have a temporary dean. Um, I'm not sure how long his name is. Well, we have a temporary dean. I'm not sure how long that person will fill the position. But Mm -hmm. largely, students feel unheard and feel as though the work to, um, number one, uh, feel safe as students of color at Yale, and number two, um, approach healthcare to make it safer for, for everyone of color has fallen on the students. And of course, that's going to affect healthcare. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, if it's a student's responsibility to do all of the things of a, a dean of director, that's educate people around them, um, you know, make students feel safe, that's um, recruit students of, of, of color for future classes, um, educate the staff. I, it's, it's extensive. Um, and what, what I think happens is those students of color kind of burn out and you really kind of become a part of the system that you came to Yale to change and make better and improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you're absolutely right. I think that most people who are starting their medical careers, whether it's in, you know, as a nurse or a midwife or a doctor or, or a naturopath or whatever it is, there's a very large degree of idealism and um, desire to serve and to make things better. And then you get into the, into the actual business of it. And it can be difficult to remain I not you know I I say idealistic but I don't mean that in a condescending way like oh they're so idealistic. I mean it's hard to go to work every day, fulfill the duties of your job, you know, live your life, support your people and continue to take a stand. It's hard. And I think that's how that's exactly where we are as students. We all came to Yale well so me and um, a group of my kind of close friends, we didn't come to Yale to, um, you know, just get a degree. We came to Yale because we have, like you said, ideals. We have things that we are um, passionate about. And we are right in that crux of, um, of, of time where we are exhausted because of kind of like that workload Um, that comes with not having a dean of DEI and we are still, you know, we get our RN in 11 months. So it is very, very fast paced. Yeah. Um, 11 months and quite a bit of it is during COVID-19. Yeah. So it's all Zoom. Um, We, we are Zoom fatigued. That is a a big part of it. 
we have never met as a class. So our class is a hundred people and we've never met in person. Um, it and is, no it is very difficult. No clinicals? Clinicals are in, are in person. And that also adds another layer of uncertainty and stress because um, what happens, not even when, if there's a breakout, when there's a breakout, we've had a couple, what is, you know, going back to that kind of role that students play, students probably play a bit more of a role in um, creating documentation for stuff like this than we probably should have to. Mm -hmm. Um, But we worked so hard to, you know, for me, um, to make it to those those Congress steps so I can, you know, advocate for um, more access to um, birthing options. We've worked so hard on what we believe in. We're scared that we are going to lose those ideals because of the institution that we attend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm just not ready to lose, like you said, lose the fight in me. Um, that's I'm here because of that fight. I'm here because I'm passionate about it. How do you keep it and still do your job every day? Well, I think that you need to find your community of like-minded people who will keep you accountable and keep your eyes on the prize of what your ideals are at this stage. And as you move into your career, you're going to see that there are elements of the system that actually work. There are elements of the system that you can impact change on. And by getting the education that you're getting, you know, a, a Yale certified nurse midwifery master's program is very highly regarded and respected. So you'll be stepping into a career with a level of authority and legitimacy that will enable you to be able to advocate and make change. That's my two cents on that. (laughs) I no, give me all of the cents. Give me the the whole dollar. Um, You know, we are still students. We are still learning. We are still absorbing all of the knowledge and all of the wisdom of people around us because we are in such a weird space. Um, Yeah. Yeah. COVID, the elections, advocacy and activism and, you know, are in in 11 months. So I am open to any and all wisdom. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about lately is that it is, there, there is this big system that, or, you know, I refer to it as the birth industry. And it creates a lot of the structure and um, support systems around how we provide care to our patients. And some of that structure is just annoying and a nuisance and a distraction. But when you get right down to it, a labor and delivery unit is, it's almost exclusively, not exclusively, but predominantly, it's a bunch of women hanging out, providing care 
to a bunch of women who are having their babies. It's a community beehive of women, nurses, midwives, um, OBGYNs, male and female. I, you know, I don't work with a lot of male mid, midwives. I don't work with a lot of male labor and delivery nurses. It's usually women. And yeah, it's a big bureaucracy, but that's what we really are as a bunch of women. And so you get into the system and you realize, oh, okay, this is actually cool. This is pretty cool. I can work with this. Now, there's a burnout rate because it's hard to work in that system for a long, long, long time. But there are some real advantages too. You do get this opportunity to work with um, a very diverse patient population, of course, depending on where you practice. When you work with the home birth crowd, it's a select group of people who can afford that experience and not just financially, but with all of the, all of the trappings that go into having a home birth experience. It's pretty exclusive actually. Um, so when you work in a hospital, uh, department, you're seeing everybody, you're seeing the 98 and a half percent of women who deliver their babies in this country. And that provides opportunities for doing your best and creating a positive experience um, on a on a huge level, it's it's pretty impactful. There's you know, so good and bad. I will say, um, I am I'm very spoiled. I'm very spoiled. Jacksonville is where I kind of, no pun intended, but was born into the birth community, uh-huh. um, and they they gave me this very like, now I'm learning it that, that this is not how America is set up, but it gave me this very cool um, introduction where we have this huge CPM population and they're very, very close with the CNMs who have, you know, their favorite OBs who have, you know, their favorite um, pediatricians. And it's this, this world where, it's this community where everybody knows everybody and um, they found this way to work together. Um, so the CPMs call the OB, you know, they recommend their favorite OBs if someone kind of tests out of care and mm-hmm. the OBs, you know, go to the CNMs to have, it's, it's just this huge community. Um, and I think that's when I went the CNM route instead of the the CPM route, because I want to, I want to go wherever I need to go to find that community for me. Um, Maybe that's not Jackson. I don't know where that is. I I grew up as a military child, so we moved a lot, Mm -hmm. but that, that feeling that you describe where it's just a a bunch of women. I love that. I love that. Yeah. 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 And as a, as a you know, healthcare provider, as a midwife, or as a labor and delivery nurse, you're going to hang out with these people for years, probably, and you're going to stay up all night with them. You know, and when you start clocking your hours and you do your your three or four 12-hour shifts per per week, and you realize I am spending way more time with these people, providing a pretty magnificent service than I am doing anything else in my life. So it's it's a cool thing. It is. Yeah. And your, your position, you. 
Well, you're positioned to create some real change, and we need the idealism of students to help all of us in the industry to see how we can do better. But but what about those sleepless nights? That's a big part of your life coming up. What do you think? I love, I, so I think when you're, that's the cool thing about the birth community. Um, I, I don't know if I've been around long enough to be like, ugh, like to feel the burnout. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I first got started, I was still active duty and I, <laughs> I would, uh, my midwife would call me, you know, around 11 and she would be like, Hey, we got a birth. And I would put my uniform in the car, bring my toothbrush, um, change of underwear and go to the birth. And then if, you know, if I couldn't stay the entire time, I had to be at work by, I think seven, um, I would go to work and take a bird bath shower and, um, go straight to work. And, those moments, you know, that when you're driving home at like uh, five and six and the roads are completely bare and you're still riding that birth high and mm-hmm. um, you've worked all night with, with this, um, this birthing person and um, she's like, I can't do it. And she does it. And you were there to be a part of this whole transformational experience. Like that, that feeling is there's nothing like it in the world. No, there's no. nothing like it in the world. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I, I still, I still crave every opportunity and then it's just, it's a humbling, honoring, you know, feeling every time someone lets you in that space with them. Um, it's just such a humbling experience and I just crave it every yeah. opportunity I can experience. I, you know, I'm still getting my RN, so we can't work on the birth floor or the LND floor. And um, I haven't, I have friends that are doulaing right now. I have no idea how you can be a doula in this program, but I have friends that do it. Um, so I, it's been a while since I've seen a birth and I, I miss that, that, you know, twilight drive, that 4am, hmm. you know, hmm. sun's about to come up in a couple of hours and it's just you and your car driving down the road, just processing your, your birth, that experience. Um, it's powerful. I still love that. I still love that. Yeah. Um, Well, what else do you want listeners to know? Hmm. I think, okay. So two things that I want people to hear my story, um, to, to know number one, um, you are needed in the boardroom, no matter if you are interested in healthcare. It is so critically important that the population of, of, of care that you are providing is a part of that boardroom. So what I'm trying to say is apply to Yale. Um, come, come have a say in the healthcare that you will receive. Um, come here. We need you. Um, you are, whoever you are, wherever you are, you are valued and you are needed in this space. That's, that's my opinion. Um, number two is I challenge all students like me who are medical students or nursing students. I challenge us to kind of 
take a more empowered role in the education that we receive, especially when it comes to diversity and racial disparities. Um, I personally have received a lot of weathering, um, even like genetics education, like what if Black women are genetically predisposed to disparities. Um, At the end of the day, when we graduate from these programs, we are responsible for the healthcare we provide. Um, We should also feel responsible for the medical information that we receive. Because what if, maybe we're not, but maybe we are, what if we can actually change the disparities and the outcomes and the entire healthcare system that we are a part of? Maybe we can't, but we'll never know until we try. Because maybe we can. (laughs) Because maybe we can. Maybe we can. Yeah. Well, are you ready for our rapid fire roundup questions? Okay. Let me take a deep breath because I get nervous. (laughs) Okay. I'm ready. What role does feminism play in your life? When I personally think feminism, I think wisdom. Um, I, there is a fellowship in a sisterhood, especially in this community of a birth community, um, that has been very fish beneficial for me personally, as a person. Um, I always, try to glean as much knowledge and wisdom from the women who have gone and walked before me as I possibly can. Cause they're, Oh, cause there are powerhouses in this community. That's another yeah. thing is like, yeah. there yeah. are some powerful women. Um, and I, I always, always try to learn from that always. Okay. Next question. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that I could have so much influence. This is, I, I'm already kind of like policing my words. I don't like how this is coming out, but I'm going to be honest and just lay it on the table. I'm going to change it a little bit. No one ever told me how much influence you could have at an institution like Yale and how much power your words could affect on a system that's as old and scary and intimidating as an Ivy League institution. All right. That's motivating and inspiring. All right. My last question for you then is this, where do you stand in the world of motherhood? I would love to be a mommy one day. I am in the weird space of um, coming from, you know, the super ambitious, I'm still super ambitious, but you know, I, I was a real estate investor and I was in the Navy and I drove ships and I have these super ambitious plans. And now I'm thinking about, you know, meeting the right guy and settling down maybe one day. Um, I would, that is still a, 
that that dream is starting to tug at me a little bit more than it did when I was younger. Um, but it's definitely something we'll have to see in the stars. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see what the future holds. All right. Well, Ashley, this has been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate your coming on and joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much for having me. Yeah. And you'll have to keep us posted as to how things are going and keep us, keep us along the ride on your journey through midwifery school. Absolutely. Of course. All right. We'll talk again down the road. Thanks so much, Jean. The pleasure is all mine. That's it for this week, everybody. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Email me, jean at jeanfaulkner. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy Parenting and Politics. Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye.